If you like monks or like gish builds or you're really interested in the new one D&D rules and have thought about not just classes and subclasses but like weapon mastery stuff and new spells and you've thought about maybe trying to build a character using those new rules or think it might be fun to watch somebody else do so then this video is for you. Welcome to D4. So yes, here at D4, D&D Deep Dive, uh, by the way, in case you didn't know, the four Ds, every week we take a deep dive into character builds for our favorite role-playing games. I like to crunch numbers about them, theorycraft about them, not so that I can tell you the right way or the best way to play a certain character, but to explore one potential way to build something in the hopes of creating a character that's both really powerful, yes, but also really fun to play. So if you enjoy creating characters for your favorite role-playing games almost as much as you enjoy playing the actual game itself, or if you're just looking for tips or ideas or some D&D-themed ASMR, then welcome home. This is where you belong, and I am so glad you're here, regardless of your reasons for being here. Thank you for watching. Uh, my name is Colby, and yeah, I do these build videos uh, every Tuesday. If you like what you see, I would appreciate it if you'd consider joining the channel as a member. There's a little button down there that says join for just a couple few bucks a month you can get access to the library of write-ups that I create for each of these builds to help you recreate the character more easily and or access to our discord server and or monthly Q&A hangout sessions. It's a great way to support the channel. Huge shout out and thank you to my channel members. I could not do this without you guys. You mean a lot to me and everybody else, you mean a lot to me too. Really, just being here and watching and liking and subscribing, these are all great ways to support the channel too. So thanks. So yeah, ever since I did my Playtest 8 video with Chris, uh, Triant Monk, a couple of months ago, watch it here, where we go over all of the pending changes for monks that they're making for 1D&D. And for those who have been hiding under a rock, that's what they're calling the updated version of the 5E rule set, which is due out later this year. <laughs> but ever since that video, people have been asking me to do a monk build using the new playtest rules. Now, normally, I don't do this. For one reason, because I like to make stuff that I feel confident that almost everyone can use at their table so as to reach the widest potential audience, right? But also, when stuff is in UA, Unearthed Arcana, like this, right, testing, beta mode, it almost invariably changes before official release. And that means if I use it in a build, I'm going to build something that doesn't really work right later on, and that kind of kills the usefulness, and hence long-term appeal of a video, right? That said, I've got plans to play a one-shot with some other YouTubers uh, soon, namely Chris, Triant Monk, uh, Pack Tactics, and Insight Check, Jeremy, uh, where we're going to be testing out some of the playtest content. Yes, we're going to be recording that video um, shortly after this video releases, actually, I think next week at the time of this video's release. Uh, January 25th is our plan, unless plans change. Stay tuned for more info on it. Hopefully you'll be able to watch us play some uh, powerful, fun builds together. Anyways, as I've been getting excited for that game and actually preparing to play a playtest monk in our own home campaign uh, that we're going to start later this month too, that no, we don't 
have any plans on recording or posting at the moment, but that might change one day, I suppose. Um, I thought it might be the perfect time to make a video about how I would build and play a playtest monk character and share it with you guys. That said, we've got a bit of a problem, and it's that after a lot of analysis and number crunching, I'm realizing that even though monks got some really nice buffs in playtest 8, I think they're still better off multiclassing out after like five or six levels to get spells. So yeah, I mean, people have long bemoaned what is commonly referred to as the martial caster divide in D&D 5e, right? Claiming, I think accurately for the most part, that casters are just a lot stronger than full martial characters in this version of the game. And to Wizards of the Coast's credit, 1D&D does seem to be making some great strides towards narrowing that gap. We've got fantastic weapon mastery stuff, we're often seeing damage bumps and like more interesting abilities for martial characters than ever before in like the playtest stuff thus far. And all of this is fantastic, and I welcome it with open arms. Nevertheless, it still kind of feels to me like, despite all of these buffs, martial characters are still going to be better off multiclassing out of their martial class to pick up some spells, most of the time depending on what you're trying to build for, right? And while that kind of excites me, if I'm being honest, because I love multiclassing, it also kind of bums me out because it tells me that Wizards of the Coast might not quite fully appreciate just how big that gap in power level is between marshals and casters. Let's look at the monk, for example. On the one hand, in addition to some other great things, at level 10 in the latest playtest, they get the ability to make three unarmed attacks with their flurry of blows instead of two, meaning that with extra attack and sure by spending a key, uh, discipline point, not key, man, I'm gonna have a hard time keeping that straight uh, in my brain. But anyway, by spending a discipline point, they'll be able to make five attacks in a turn. And that is fantastic, right? By level 10. But if you were to instead leave Monk behind for a full caster class after level five, an extra attack, right? By level 10, you would have third level spells. And while sure, you'd be giving up not only one more attack, as well as more discipline points, you'd be giving up evasion, more move speed, etc., etc. Especially when it comes to damage, there's kind of just no real comparison between one more unarmed strike on a turn and third level spells, right? Third level spells would let us get things to add damage to each of our attacks, for example, and that would far outweigh the damage from one more unarmed strike. And of course, that's to say nothing of all the other incredible things you can do with third level spells, right? From control, to flight, to invisibility, to fireballs, to counterspell, etc., etc., etc. So, Watsi, Wizards of the Coast, if you're listening, I'm begging you, pleading with you, please don't hold back on martial buffs, or maybe, don't hate me here, people, caster nerfs. It's not that I hate casters, I just want the decision between sticking with a martial class or getting out of that class to get spells to be just a little bit more difficult. That's all. Thanks. Anyways, that's all just a long-winded way of saying that even though I hooked you in with a thumbnail promising a 1D&D monk build, we're only going to be partly a monk here. But good news, as a result, we'll also be testing out some other really awesome features, namely spells, from the latest playtest with this build as well. And it is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Um, before we dive in though, let me just clarify something about how I think Wizards is intending the new 1D&D stuff to be used. And it's definitely how my friends and I are using it. Essentially, if there's a new version of a thing in the 1D&D material, right, whether it's a spell, 
background stuff, feats, classes, subclasses, races, uh, species, etc. Then we use the new thing. If a thing doesn't exist in the one D&D playtest material, we're free to use an existing thing as well. Jeremy Crawford and others have said over and over and over again that their intent with the one D&D material, with the updated player's handbook and DMG, right, coming out later this year, is that it work perfectly with existing 5e content, right? So, for example, if I want to play a human for my species, and I'm using the updated rules, right, then I use the humans as it exists in the playtest material. If, however, I wanted to use something out of the Monsters of the Multiverse book instead, I'm fine to do so, since even though those species aren't going to be in the new player's handbook when it comes out later this year, they still exist in 5e, and so are fair game. Make sense? All right, in that case, I proudly present D&D build number 155, the one D&D warrior of the hand monk. <laughs> That's a little unwieldy. How about the handy druid? The handsy druid. <laughs> That's going to get me uh, demonetized. The Waterbender. Neptune's Hand. Hmm. How about just the Hand of the Open Sea? Yeah, I think I'll stick with that. Huge thanks to my good friend Randall Hampton for the fantastic artwork that he put together for this build. He does this with all of my D&D builds. He is so talented. If you would like to follow him on social media or reach out to him to try and commission him to create some art for you or for your entire party even, potentially, I will put links in the video description as always on how to do so. And of course, before we jump into the build, I would like to share a word from our sponsor for the video this week, Che Peku. I love these guys. Che Peku, they're some of the best TTRPG map makers in the world. To date, they have created over 4,000 hand-drawn maps that you can use in D&D, Pathfinder, or whatever other game you might be playing at your table, and they are spectacular. We're talking high resolution with map options for every conceivable environment and game setting, whether you're looking for a classic dungeon crawl or something a little more offbeat like a kobold brewery or a giant elder brain skull. What I love most about their maps though is this. They're almost never static. They typically come with options for different seasons or time of day, weather effects, and a lot of them are even animated. Naturally, their maps all work seamlessly on most virtual tabletops, VTTs, right? Including but not limited to Alchemy RPG, Roll20, Encounter Plus, Foundry VTT, Fantasy Grounds, and more. But of course, you could also print them out if your table is in person, and they would look amazing there as well, depending on the quality of your printer. This is all assuming, of course, that you become a supporter of theirs on Patreon. So go check out their stuff at chepeku.com. And if you like what you see, which I know you will, then go to their Patreon at patreon.com slash chepeku and join their over 30,000 other supporters. Holy cow, that is a 50% increase since the first time they sponsored a video just a few short months ago. These guys are growing like weeds. And with good reason, right? So yeah, show them a little love. A few bucks a month will get you access to all of your wildest map dreams. It's such a great deal. And best of all, when you support them, you get access to their complete existing library. The monthly membership just ensures that you get all the new stuff right when it comes out, but supporting them instantly gets you access to their entire backlog of maps, which is just such an amazingly generous business model. So huge thank you to Che Peku. You guys rock. And let's jump into the build. At level one for our starting class, right, the 1D&D monk that's actually more caster than monk, and we're starting fighter. <laughs> what the crap, dude? Still? Even in 1D&D? 
flip table. As always, you don't need to do this. Um, we are actually here for one main reason, and it's actually a brand new reason because it's new to 1D&D, but yes, I'm thrilled to grab a fighting style and constitution saving throw proficiency while we're here, right? Since we are going to want that for our concentration checks later on. But yeah, fighter one. As for our species, not race, if we were strictly sticking to races in the new player's handbook, I'd go with the high elf. Uh, wood elf or drow elf are fine as well, but I want it to be an elf. I bet you know why. And of the three options, I think I like High Elf best because not only do they get a free cantrip here, pick your favorite for that, but all elves get a spell at third level and another at fifth in the new player's handbook material, right? That they can use once per day or more if they have spell slots, right? And High Elves get Detect Magic at third level, which is fine, but then Misty Step at fifth, which is my favorite of the spell options available among the elf options here. That said, when I play this character, I'm probably going to make them a Shadow Archai or an Aladrin so that they can get the much more frequent teleportation option that those races from the Monsters of the Multiverse give. And then they also give you a fun little bonus on top of the teleport, right? I guess I should mention that Half-Elf would be worth considering as well for the uh, additional ability score improvement, but... I think I'd rather have the teleport here. Now, as for our background, typically I don't talk about picking a background, right? But I think if we're using the 1D&D playtest rules, I probably should because in 1D&D, we actually get our ability score increases, skill and tool proficiencies, and a free first level feat from our background. So it's really nice. Now, they don't really have like set backgrounds to choose from like they do in the 2014 player's handbook. They do have some like suggested backgrounds, but really it's kind of up to you to create your own. For ability score increases, I would take a plus two to dexterity and a plus one to wisdom. Wisdom. And then for skill proficiencies, I'd go stealth and perception personally, and then thieves tools for the one tool proficiency option that's available. And this is all assuming that you want or need to be your party's like stealthy lock picker and trap disarmor, which I will be in my party. Feel free to go with other stuff otherwise. As far as what I would name this background, I think I would call it the Way of Water Novice. Hmm. Okay, so, like I said, everyone in 1D&D starts with a free feat. Woohoo! Death to variant human and custom lineage at last. <laughs> Though, in 1D&D, feats are divided into two types, right? You've got feats available at first level and then everything else available at fourth level and above. The free feat we get has to be one of those first level feats. And maybe to help with confusion, if you're using both 1D&D content and existing 5e stuff, those fourth level feats are all half feats. So I think the way to go is to treat anything that's a half feat as basically unavailable here until level four, even if you're using feats from 5e that aren't showing up in the playtest, right? As for what feat we're going to take for the first time ever, I think, at least in D&D builds, not counting uh, Baldur's Gate 3 builds, unless I used this in the Street Fighter build, maybe. I can't remember. Anyways, I want Tavern Brawler because it is way better after some buffs in the playtest than it is in the 2014 player's handbook version. Here's how the feat works in the playtest. First off, it tells us our unarmed strike is a d4 plus our strength modifier, but we're gonna be a monk, so we don't really care about that. 
We also don't care as much about the furniture as weapons thing, though it can be fun and cool. It's kind of improvised weapon stuff that we won't plan on using. What's more interesting to me is that it allows us to reroll damage on our unarmed strike if we roll a one, first of all. And I mean, that's not an amazing damage increase, but it's a minor damage increase to our unarmed strikes, which we'll be making a lot of. And that's actually new to D&D, having a way to buff unarmed strikes like this, right? It's almost like a fighting style for unarmed strikes. I appreciate it. But best of all, and the main reason that we wanted the feat is because of the shove feature, which tells us that when we hit a creature with an unarmed strike as part of the attack action on our turn, so not with, say, Flurry of Blows later, right, we not only deal damage, but can push them five feet away. And I love that so much because there's no size restriction yet. Knock on wood. And no saving throw allowed either. It's just an automatic push when we punch, and we will for sure be making use of that on this character from time to time. As for our ability scores, I assume we're going point by as always and say, let's start with a 15 dex, and then we got our plus two there, right? 15 wisdom, and we took our plus one there, and then a 14 constitution. As for equipment, we just want to make sure that we end up with a scimitar and a short sword on this character, among whatever else you might want to get. You might want to grab some scale mail as well, though we would be getting rid of that just at the next level, so it kind of depends on if you want to spend the money for something that you're going to be ditching soon, but yeah, the main things here are scimitar, short sword. Because yes, we are going to be two-weapon fighting. We get a fighting style at fighter level one, and yes, we're going to take the two-weapon fighting style. Now, fighting styles are a little different in the playtest. They're basically considered feats, and then as a fighter, we get a free fighting style feat here. They're otherwise pretty similar to the 2014 player's handbook, and yeah, we're going to be going with two-weapon fighting, like I say, using both the scimitar and the short sword when we do. Uh, since they're both finesse weapons and uh, actually will be monk weapons as well, it will let us add our dexterity modifier to the damage of that offhand attack, which is great. So why a short sword and a scimitar? Simple. Monks, as we'll see, have proficiency with both, and both will be considered monk weapons, and we want those weapons specifically not only because they're finesse light weapons, but because of their associated weapon masteries. Now, really quickly, in case you're unfamiliar with weapon masteries, or as a refresher, in the new player's handbook, every weapon comes with an associated mastery that, if you have access to that mastery, you can take advantage of to do cool additional things when you attack, right? So, a quarterstaff has the topple mastery that would let you try to knock an enemy prone if you hit them. A great axe has the cleave mastery that would let you do damage to a second nearby enemy, etc. Etc. I love it, and it makes weapon choice in D&D interesting and fun again. Kudos, Wizards of the Coast here. So, yes, fighters at level 1 get to choose three weapons that they can gain the weapon mastery for. And they can even swap those out with a little training after a long rest. That's amazing. The two that we want here are Vex, which we get from the short sword, and more importantly, Nick, which we get from the scimitar. Vex tells us that if we hit with this weapon and do damage, our next attack before the end of our next turn has advantage. That's nice. That's a long time to let us have advantage. So yeah, we could use it on a reaction attack, for example, right? Again, that's great, but admittedly, we might have already had advantage. Still, it's a nice backup. Nick is the real zinger here, though. See, two-weapon fighting is worded a little differently in the playtest than it is in 5e currently. We're simply told that when we take the attack action on our turn and attack with a light weapon, we can make an attack as a bonus action on that same turn with a different light weapon. We don't add our ability modifier typically, but with the two-weapon fighting style we do. Now, 
if we're using a weapon with the nick property, we're told that gloriously, that extra attack that was using our bonus action before can instead just be made as part of our action, our attack action, right? We're just getting two attacks with our action. So long as one of them has the Vex weapon mastery and we have access to that weapon mastery. So first attack is with a short sword. If we hit, we get advantage on our next attack and that is going to be made with a scimitar. But since it has the Nick property, we just make the attack as part of our attack action, letting us save our bonus action for other things we might want to be doing. So awesome. We now get to make two attacks on our turn right from level one, and we still have our bonus action free. Also at level one, fighters still get second wind, but it has been improved in the playtest. We still use a bonus action to regain a d10 plus our fighter level and hit points, but we actually get two uses of it. One of them we get back on a short rest, the other doesn't come back until a long rest, but later fighters do get to do more cool things with second wind, which I love, but we don't care about those for this build because now that we've got weapon masteries and two weapon fighting it is monk time it's time to get monkey <laughs> that's that's terrible right so level two we're gonna go monk one and first up as a monk one we've got the new and improved martial arts feature telling us that when we're unarmored and unshielded so doff that armor if you've been wearing any we get to just straight up make an unarmed strike as a bonus action no taking the attack action first required and this is really a huge deal We'll discuss why a little bit later. We can also use dexterity instead of strength for attack and damage rolls of our unarmed strikes and monk weapons, which by the way are better now since the weapons that qualify for monk weapons are simple weapons and martial weapons with the light property. Hooray! So short swords and scimitars count, uh, as do hand crossbows for the record, so have fun with that. What's more, when we grapple or shove, which in the playtest, those aren't considered normal attacks that just end up being athletics contests uh, as currently in 5e, right? Uh, grapples and shoves are now unarmed strikes that an enemy gets to save against to avoid. But when we do those things, we can use our dexterity to modify the difficulty check of that saving throw instead of strength. We are dexterous grapplers and shovers, and you should totally take advantage of that on your character. I'm not really planning on it, at least not when I crunch numbers, but it's so cool. Finally, our unarmed strikes and monk weapon attacks, if we choose, are not a d4, but a d6 right from the get-go. And they scale as we get more monk levels, and that is a small but appreciated little damage bump. So now our elbows and our feet and our knees do just as much damage as our scimitar and short sword, which is really kind of cool. I love it. We also get unarmored defense at monk one, which is pretty much unchanged. It lets us add both our dexterity and our wisdom modifiers to our armor class if we are unarmored and unshielded, meaning that we have a 16 AC right now. Not amazing, but no worse than scale mail plus two from our dexterity, right? At level three, we would be a monk two, and that means we get monk's discipline or the artist formerly known as key. <laughs> so yes, we now get discipline points to use on our important monk features, still just one per monk level. They reset on a short rest and we can use them for three different things. Still flurry of blows to make two unarmed strikes as a bonus action instead of one, but yes, wonderfully, something we can do without taking the attack action first, meaning we can lead with flurry of blows, and that can be a bit of a game changer, honestly, again, as we'll discuss. We still get patient defense, but this now tells us that we can disengage as a bonus action at no cost. Sweet mother of mercy, hooray. <laughs> and 
if we want to spend a discipline point, we can both disengage and dodge for a single bonus action. Wunderbar. Finally, Step of the Wind is similarly improved, letting us just dash as a bonus action for no cost, or spend a discipline point to dash and disengage. I'm so happy. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Because just like I was saying to Will back when we were crying over the monk improvements uh, from Playtest 6, they've now moved the new uncanny metabolism from 7th level to 2nd level, and this lets us, once per long rest, renew all of our key points when we roll initiative, meaning even if we don't have time for a short rest, at least once per day, we can still have full key when a fight breaks out, and that's just so very helpful and needed. Oh, and it even lets us heal for a roll of our martial arts die plus our monk level in hit points. Feels like Christmas. We still get unarmored movement here as well, giving us an extra 10 feet of move speed so long as we are unarmored and unshielded. But at level four, this is even better because we get to be a monk three, and that means Means we get the new and improved uh, deflect attacks upgraded from deflect missiles, right? This lets us use our reaction when we're hit by either a ranged or a melee attack that does bludgeoning, piercing, or slashing damage to reduce the attack's damage by a d10 plus our dexterity modifier plus our monk level. And if we reduce it to zero, we can spend a discipline point to redirect the attack to an enemy within five feet of us if it was a melee attack or 60 feet of us if it was ranged. And instead of making an attack roll when we do that, as in 5e currently, the enemy just makes a dexterity saving throw or takes two rolls of our martial arts die plus our dexterity modifier in damage. It's not a ton of damage. It might not be worth a discipline point, but it might, right? Especially if it's going to finish an enemy off, yeah? But then we get our monk subclass as well, and as I've kind of already indicated, we are going with warrior of the hand, no longer way of the open hand, right? So we can live our best kung fu fantasies. Warriors of the Hand really only get one ability here, but it's kind of a three-in-one. Open Hand Technique, it tells us that when we hit an enemy with one of our unarmed strikes, specifically from Flurry of Blows, we can apply one of three effects to that attack. Addle prevents them from taking opportunity attacks until their next turn, perfect for hit-and-run tactics. Push requires them to succeed on a strength saving throw or be pushed up to 15 feet away, and Topple requires them to succeed on a dexterity saving throw or be knocked prone. Those are all really nice, and I imagine we'll be using all three at different times, but especially those last two for damage purposes at least. At level five, we would be a monk four, and that means we get slow fall. This is pretty much unchanged. We use our reaction to reduce falling damage by five times our monk level. And then yes, we get a feat. And you know what we're taking, right? Of course you do. Elven accuracy, which requires that we be an elf or a half elf, but lets us bump our dexterity here uh, for us by one to a nice even 18. And then tells us that when we have advantage on an attack using dexterity, wisdom, intelligence, or charisma, we get to roll three d20s basically instead of two, and considering how often we should have advantage, that's going to do really nice things for our damage, especially against higher enemy armor classes. At level six, we would be a monk five, and we get Stunning Strike, that currently contentious ability in 5e has changed pretty significantly for the playtest. Basically, when we hit an enemy, we can spend a discipline point to, only once per turn now, force an enemy to make still a constitution save against it, unfortunately. But if they fail, they're stunned. Not until the end of our next turn, but the beginning of our next turn. Bummer. That said, 
Now, if they succeed, we still get to do force damage to them equal to our martial arts die plus our wisdom modifier. So it got some nerfs, yes, but also a buff. And honestly, I think I'd take this version over the current version in game. It sort of like prevents you from just blowing all of your discipline points to try and stun an enemy in vain, right? And then being frustrated at the end by your inability to do so. And now it still rewards you with some damage even if they do succeed on that saving throw so it doesn't just feel like you've just wasted your discipline point for no reason. I like it. At Monk 5, we get extra attack as well, of course. And yes, this lets us take two attacks when we take the attack action instead of one, or for those of us with two light weapons and the Nick property, three attacks instead of two. Also, our martial arts die still gets an increase at this level, but that means it goes from a D6 now to a D8. And that means we are two weapon fighting with two D8 weapons, and we don't even have the dual wielder feet. So cool. So, at level 6, it is time for our first damage report. Let's talk about what combat should look like for us at this level. It's fairly straightforward at the moment. On round 1, we're running up to our target and opening with flurry of blows. We want to knock them prone so that we can have advantage. So feel free to try and do that with both unarmed strikes if they succeeded on their save against going prone on the first unarmed strike, right? If they fail on the first, I'd probably addle with the second so that you can flit safely away if you wanted to. Regardless, with our action, we would attack with our short sword, then our scimitar, then thanks to Nick on the scimitar, we still get one more attack this turn and should be able to make it with either weapon or an unarmed strike for that matter. So use whichever you want, maybe favoring the better magical weapon, for example, if you've got one. All told, we would be making five attacks on our turn so long as we had the discipline to spend and with five discipline points, Points, that should get us through most if not all combat encounters especially since once per day we can just get all of them back when we roll initiative right and all but the first of those attacks should have advantage it's not a guarantee but between two attempts at knocking them prone and the vex property on our short sword it's very likely that most of our attacks will benefit from elven accuracies like super advantage with each attack hitting for a d8 plus our dexterity modifier for a total of 5d8 plus 20. And so, against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would on average here do 44 damage per round, and against an enemy with a 15 AC, it would be hardly less 41 DPR. And that's super solid compared to other sustained damage builds that I've done to date. At this level, that's kind of middle of tier 1. So, super strong, but not particularly overpowered by any means. I know it feels that way just because it's a monk <laughs> and it's so much better, but really it kind of just means that monks are actually just like keeping up with some of the best damage dealers in game right now. Holy crap, monks are actually keeping up with some of the best damage dealers in game right now? If you build them right, anyways, that's so amazing. It just kind of makes me want to cry. Tears of joy. But... Alas, I don't think they would continue to keep up all that well if we just stayed monk the whole way, unfortunately, even with the new playtest rules. And that's okay. Maybe they'll get additional buffs between now and release. Maybe spells and casters will get some nerfs. If neither of those things happen, I'm perfectly happy to continue to be highly incentivized to multi-class and make everything a gish, so no hard feelings. Because yes, at level 7, now that we've got extra attack and a nice handful of key uh, discipline points, I do want to get some spells. And I'm particularly interested in the new conjuration spells that we got from Playtest 8 because they are so awesome. And best of all, they don't just summon infinity animals that are totally unbalanced and slow your table's gameplay to a crawl and completely muck up the battlefield. 
Field. Thank you. Thank you, Wizards of the Coast. Best Christmas present ever. So, yes, I think the best caster class we can get into to take advantage of these shiny new spells, among other things, is the Druid, as I kind of already hinted at when I was talking about what to name this build. Now, you might be thinking that we should at least get to Monk 6 so that our unarmed strikes can do force damage uh, as per the playtest material, helping us avoid resistance to non-magical attacks, right? I'd say yes, sure, unless you can get a magic item that allows you to enjoy that benefit anyways, in which case... I don't care about Monk 6 quite so much. The Warrior of the Hand feature that we get lets us heal ourselves is still just a little meh to me. It's so much better in Baldur's Gate 3. Take a drink. So I say let's start getting those Druid levels now. So we'd be a Druid one here, and that means first up we get spells, and I'd probably just go with the usual suspects here. Thorn Whip to do damage and pull an enemy closer if need be. Healing Word and Goodberry, of course. I'd probably grab Cure Wounds now, I think, as it and Healing Word got some nice increases to the healing that they do. Doubling the dice, making Cure Wounds a lot more attractive than it used to be. I'd probably grab Fairy Fire or Entangle for concentration at this level, though I'm not 100% sure that I'd be using them in every encounter, really. Fairy Fire potentially gives us advantage on attacks against those who fail their save against it, and Entangle can potentially restrain even multiple enemies. Both are nice, but they require our action, and that's a little tough to sacrifice. Still, especially now that we can flurry of blows with our bonus action even after we cast a spell with our action, they're a lot more tempting to consider using on round one of a combat, right? We also, at Druid 1, get Druidic, which is a little better than before. We still use it to leave messages for others who can read those messages with, like, leaves and sticks and things, but it also lets us always have the Speak with Animals spell prepared, which feels nice. In the playtest, druids also get, at this level, a new feature called Primal Order. This lets us choose between a Warden option, which gives us a medium armor and martial weapon proficiency, neither of which we need, right? And then the Magician option, which lets us earn an extra cantrip and add our Wisdom modifier to our nature checks. Neither buff is huge, but both are nice little bonuses. And I love that they kind of just let me lean into the whole nature-loving magic user here. The druidic change as well, right? Wizards is doing some great things, I think, to add just kind of a better flavor and feel and just really kind of flesh out the concept of the Druid, and they do this for other classes as well, too, and it's great. At level 8, we would be a Druid 2, and that means we get Wild Companion, which they kind of ported over from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, but they improved it. It lets us still spend a use of our Wild Shape, more on that in a second, or a spell slot to cast the Find Familiar spell, and that Familiar now actually lasts until the end of the day. Hooray! Or until it dies, I guess. But they've actually heavily changed the Find Familiar spell now, too. So, quickly, with Find Familiar, we'd summon the Familiar, but it has a stat block template, and none of the options that we can choose as part of that template have flyby, like the old owl option, right? Meaning no more cheesy letting your familiar always fly in, take the help action, and then swoop away without fear of repercussion. I guess I'm kind of okay with that. It would have been nice to get advantage on that very first attack every round before I managed to knock the enemy prone, right? I mean, I guess you still could use your familiar to take the help action, you're still just much more at risk at getting your familiar killed now. Fortunately, they've also changed the spell so that when your familiar gets reduced to zero hit points, it just vanishes into an extra dimensional space with like one hit point for an hour or until you summon it back with an action. This only works once per day, but at least it helps you hold on to your familiar and or your spell slots or wild shape uses a little more easily than you used to, and that's not nothing. 
Oh, they also can attack now if you use your reaction for it. Not generally worth it, I don't think, unless you're pretty sure that an enemy only has like one hit point left. But yeah, good to know. Nice option to have. And then, yes, at Druid 2, we still get Wild Shape, of course, which lets us transform into a now pre-selected by us number of beasts. I won't go over it in too great a detail here since we're not planning on Wild Shaping in combat, but just know that we can change into beasts as a bonus action now instead of an action. They can have a swim speed right from the get-go, which is potentially useful. And you can talk now while in beast form too. But then the, maybe the biggest change is instead of getting the beast's hit points, when you wild shape, you just get some temporary hit points on top of your own, which you keep. And like you don't revert back to humanoid form when say those temporary hit points expire or anything like that. You can just, you just stay in beast form all the way down until you hit zero. But at that point you go unconscious and wild shape ends. For us, it'll mostly be used for utility, I think, uh, or to summon a familiar, or actually, more than anything, for our subclass feature. Because yes, at level 9, we would be a druid 3, and that means we get our druid subclass. It's delayed by a level now to level 3, and we are gonna go with, any guesses? I was actually very tempted to go Spores Druid because of all of those attacks that we're making, right? But I've already done an open hand Spores Druid uh, right over there, even though this monk is vastly different, mm, that's too samesy. And I really wanted to try out the new Druid subclass from the playtest material, so yes, that means we're going with the shiny new Circle of the Sea. All right. Ooh, let's read the description that Wizards of the Coast has in place for this subclass shall we? Druids of the Circle of the Sea draw on the tempestuous natural forces of the world's oceans and storms. Some view themselves as embodiments of nature's wrath, seeking vengeance against those who despoil the natural world. Others seek mystical unity with nature by attuning themselves to the ebb and flow of the tides, following the rush of currents and waves, and listening to the inscrutable whispers and roars of the winds. Hmm, I like it. So, as a Circle of the Sea Druid, we get the Wrath of the Sea feature. This tells us that, as a bonus action, we use one of our wild shape changes to manifest an ocean spray aura that lasts for 10 minutes and extends around us for 10 feet. While active, at the end of our turn, we can force a creature within 10 feet of us to make a constitution save against our spell DC, or take thunder damage equal to a number of D6s equal to our wisdom modifier, so 3D6 for now, and, if they're large or smaller, be pushed up to 15 feet away from us. Come on, that is so cool. And it couples really nicely with the pushing that we could be doing with Warrior of the Hand stuff, not to mention our Tavern Brawler feat. And yeah, surprisingly to me, this damage and push don't even require a bonus action or a reaction or anything. We just have to have the R in place and can then do it against one enemy at the end of our turn that's within 10 feet of us. Awesome. Sure, it's a constitution saving throw and they don't take half damage on a success or anything, but still. Really cool. Why do we care about pushing so much, you may ask? Well, it's because at this level we also get second level druid spells, and while sea druids get an incredible list of spells for free, fog cloud, gust of wind, ray of frost, shatter, and thunder wave, and you should definitely take aid and lesser restoration if you can get them, right? The one I care most about is, of course, Moonbeam, because Moonbeam has that wonderful wording telling us that creatures take damage from the spell when they both enter into the area of effect and when they start their turn there. Yes, 
It's potentially two times around. Look it up in the Sage Advice Compendium, naysayers. So yes, we can cast Moonbeam as an action. Its area of effect is a cylinder with a five foot radius, and it does 2d10 of radiant damage, half on a save, scaling up by another d10 per spell level that we upcast it. Importantly, thanks to that wonderful change to Unarmed Strike and Flurry of Blows for monks, this means that we could still cast it or even move it on our turn if we needed to and still push enemies into it with our Flurry of Blows bonus action thanks to Warrior of the Hand all on the same turn. So lovely. And so, at level 9, it is time for our next damage report. Things have changed quite a bit for us since last check. Here's what I kind of want to do on round one. Bonus action, Wrath of the Sea, action to Moonbeam, and then at the end of our turn, push our enemy into Moonbeam since we've got Wrath of the Sea up, right? We would do more damage on round one, casting Moonbeam with our action and then using our bonus action to hit them and push them, right? Especially since the push we get from Wrath of the Sea is a constitution save, but getting them into that moonbeam so they take damage both when we move them and at the start of their turn is pretty important and i want to be firing on all cylinders on round two and not moonbeam on round one and then punch a couple times and then punch a couple times on round two but bonus action for wrath of the sea right then we're not firing on all cylinders until round three you know but do what you want the point is once we are firing on all cylinders on our turn, we're running up to an enemy and making our five attacks, but this time pushing them into Moonbeam, right? Now, we can do that with one of our Flurry of Blows attacks, but they might succeed on their save against that push. We can push them with our Wrath of the Sea stuff, but they might succeed on that save as well. You know what they don't even get to save against? That's right, the Tavern Brawler Shove. There is no size limitation. There's no saving throw. They just move. Now, it's only five feet, and it has to be from an unarmed strike made with our attack action, but there's no reason why we couldn't, with the three attacks we get with our action, make one of them with our short sword, one of them with our scimitar, and one of them with an unarmed strike, right? Right. So, I think it's a pretty safe assumption that they're going to be pushed into Moonbeam. On subsequent rounds, if we need to move the Moonbeam with our action and then push the enemy in, we can do so. It's less ideal, but doing 4d10 damage, half on a save, over the course of a round is going to be very comparable to making three attacks with our action, right? Depending on the enemy's save and their armor class, etc. Anyways, I'm going to assume that we're making all five attacks and pushing them, though of course we won't be able to necessarily do that every single time. Considering that we can potentially push 15 feet with each of our Flurry of Blows attacks, plus five more for Tavern Brawler, plus 15 potentially with our end of the turn Wrath of the Sea, that's a lot of pushing. Push it real good. And I like our chances of getting at least one enemy into Moonbeam on our turn. And so, against an enemy with a 10 armor class and a plus zero to their constitution saving throw, we would on average do 77 damage per round. And against an enemy with a 16 AC and a plus six to their con save, it would be 64 DPR. And I should also mention, because of all of the pushing that we can potentially do, it's very possible that we could be damaging multiple enemies right now with both attacks 
and Moonbeam if we wanted to. We've got 40 feet of move speed and multiple ways to push enemies. What's more, the area of effect for Moonbeam can potentially cover a 3x3 three three area on the grid if you're playing on a grid. Remember, spell effects don't have to snap to the grid, and in D&D, circles are squares, right? So there's a decently sized area for you to get enemies into. I'm not going to calculate damage on this one as if it were a multi-target damage dealer, but it very well could be. And with Moonbeam and the other better spell that we're going to be getting to shortly, doing damage twice per round, both of them, potentially, it wouldn't be a bad idea to go that route. So yes, at level 10, we would be a Druid 4, and we get a feat, and I'm going to say let's cap dex here, bump it to 20. It helps with our damage probably more than anything, but to be fair, there is a good argument for taking wisdom here instead. I'll talk about that more a little bit later. At level 11, we would be a Druid 5, and this is the level that I have really had my sights on this whole time because it means that we get some of the best shiny new Druid toys. First up, Druids get a new ability in the playtest at this level, Wild Resurgence. This tells us that once per long rest, we can exchange a Wild Shape use for a first level spell slot. And that's kind of nice, but better yet, can give ourselves a wild shape use by burning any spell slot, and can even do this once per turn. This seems especially nice for those builds that depend like even more on their wild shape than we do, but it's still some useful flexibility regardless. The thing I am most excited about, though, is third level druid spells. Now, Open Sea Druids get Sleet Storm and Lightning Bolt for free, really great spells, and Lightning Bolt isn't usually available to Druids, so that's some nice potential AoE, control, and or damage options, right? But Druids also get Conjure Animals. And for the first time ever, I'm going to take it with glee. <laughs> Oh, it's not totally game-breaking like it used to be, and I'm so happy because it's still really, really good, and I couldn't wait to get to it in this build. So in case you don't know, here's how the spell works. You cast it as an action. It requires concentration, and it summons a large, so like two by two on the grid, swarm of spirit animals, basically. I think I'd probably flavor this as some kind of sea serpents here, maybe like a bunch of electric eels or something. Anyway, it lasts up to 10 minutes, that's nice, but then similar to Moonbeam, when a creature enters the area for the first time on a turn, or starts their turn within 10 feet of the swarm, so we're talking about like a 6x6 area on the grid, right? For those playing on a grid, it's a 2x2, two two, and then if they get within 2 squares of it, so the area covered is a 30-foot square. Anyways, when they're in that area, they don't make a save against damage, but instead you make a melee spell attack against them on a hit. They take 2d10 damage plus your spell casting modifier. Okay, let's break this down a little. You might be thinking, 2d10 plus 3, our wisdom modifier, isn't as good as an upcast moonbeam, which would do 3d10, right? Not only that, but the enemy makes a save against moonbeam and then still takes half damage if they succeed. With conjure animals, we hit them or we do nothing, right? Why not keep using moonbeam? For that matter, arguably, why not go with something other than druid and use cloud of dagger, since that doesn't allow for a save, it just does the damage, as I've talked about many times on this channel, especially recently. I'll tell you why. It's because, incredibly, and Man, I hope they do not change this for official release, but I'm really worried they might. When you move on your turn with Conjure Animals, you can also move that swarm up to 30 feet. You just move it. No action required, no bonus action required. I mean, when I did my Hexblade 2.0 video recently, right, my biggest concern about the build as I discussed in the final thoughts, and as a lot of you commented, was that while the damage was potentially nice, 
it could be difficult to get an enemy into that cloud of dagger spell that I was relying on every single round, if they were intelligent at all, at least, right? Because cloud of daggers doesn't move at all, and it's a small area of effect. Now, with Moonbeam, at least you can move it, but it does require your action. That's a lot fewer attacks that you would be making consistently on your turn if you needed to constantly move it, right? And that's a big bummer. But with Conjure Animals, I mean, it's so perfect. It doesn't matter if your enemies are trying to run away from your swarm of stinging electric eels. They are heat-seeking electric eels now. Ah, that's so terrifying. At this point, you can practically guarantee that your enemy is going to get pushed into that swarm on your turn, even if they're huge, even if they have an amazing strength save, as long as you can hit them with an unarmed attack with your action on your turn, you can move a little, position the swarm just right behind the enemy, and then, thanks to Tavern Brawler, shove them in no matter what, as long as you hit them with an unarmed strike with your action. Now, the damage that they take upon entering and at the beginning of their turn is not guaranteed damage. We have to make a spell attack against them, right? But here's something potentially cool. If we've got the enemy prone, then the attack could be made with advantage. It's a little messy. As a reminder, the prone condition states that attacks against prone enemies are made with advantage if the attacker is within five feet of the creature. It doesn't say anything about weapon attacks or melee attacks, etc., just attacks. That's great, but it begs the question, when is the attack made against an enemy if they get within 10 feet of the swarm, right? I think it would happen the moment they get within range, which would not be five feet away from the swarm, but 10 feet away, right? Thus, if they were prone, the attack would be made at disadvantage, and that's bad. Obviously, talk this over with your DM. I can see arguments for both interpretations, but I mean, you know, if an enemy enters the area of their own free will, you're gonna make the attack the moment they get in range, right? I don't know that we get to choose when we make an attack if we're pushing them in, so unless your DM says otherwise. So the play here is probably to push them first on our turn, make the swarm attack, then move them up, try to knock them prone after so that your other attacks have advantage and then at the beginning of the enemy's turn, whether because you moved the swarm up next to them or because you actually push them all the way to be next to the swarm, then the swarm gets advantage on that attack. Whew. Okay, also that attack with advantage, right, should be made using elven accuracy super advantage. I know the attack is coming from the swarm's position, but the wording of the spell is that you are making a spell attack. That may feel cheesy or not intended to you, but rules as written, that's how it should work, right? Anyways, again, talk all of this over with your DM to make sure that you're on the same page. And Dallin, I know you're watching this because you're editing. Um, consider this me wanting to talk to you about how this is going to work in game. <laughs> Anyways, I am absolutely in love with this spell. It went from like my least favorite spell in all of D&D 5e to like one of my most favorite spells. And I mean, I didn't even mention it gives us advantage on strength saves when we're within 10 feet of it. And then yeah, it upscales by a d10 for every spell level above third that we use to cast it. Awesome, awesome. Awesome. All right, at level 12, we will be a Druid 6, and that means as a Druid of the Sea, we get Aquatic Affinity. And this is nice here, but here's a, like a meta question for you. 
Why are the second subclass features almost always worse than the ones that you get right when you get your subclass? There are exceptions to this, of course, but what's the deal with making the first feature you get right when you get your subclass really awesome and then the second feature more like a ribbon or utility focused thing? This is like the primary reason that I'm always multi-classing out of a class after a few levels, right? Anyways, Aquatic Affinity. It lets us always have the water breathing spell prepared, gives us a swim speed equal to our move speed, and even lets our wild shape form have a swim speed if we take a wild shape form that doesn't otherwise have swim speed. Okay, so if you really need to swim or breathe underwater, this is potentially useful. In all of my years of playing D&D, I have needed that twice, two times, over hundreds of play sessions. And one of those times, I was already a druid, uh, higher than level four, so I just wild shaped into a shark. I don't know. It's kind of potentially handy, but it's just so underwhelming. This is not, however, me asking for wizards to nerf the first subclass feature for subclasses. You want that moment to feel cool and momentous. I get it, but anyway. At level 13, we would be a druid 7. And in the playtest, druids get elemental fury here. This is another nice little druid buff. Similar to Cleric's Blessed Strikes, it lets us either add our wisdom modifier to our druid cantrip damage, or do an extra d8 of cold, fire, lightning, or thunder damage once per turn when we hit with a weapon attack or a wild shape beast form attack. We'll take the latter, of course, and it's not a lot, but I'll take whatever little bump they want to give me, sure. We also get fourth level druid spells here, and as a sea druid, we get uh, control water and ice storm for free. Not quite as exciting as previous free spells, but we'll take them. And then in addition to the usual suspects for fourth level druid spells, should we grab the new conjure minor elementals? Answer, hell yes we should. <laughs> I mean, especially as long as it exists the way that they've got it written right now, it's kind of just a way better spirit shroud. Should we use it instead of conjure animals for our concentration though? Let's discuss. If we upcast conjure animals as a fourth level spell here, it would do 3d10 plus our wisdom modifier in damage twice potentially on a round. So 6d10 plus six. But it has a lower hit chance since it's based on our wisdom modifier, right? On the other hand, if we used conjure minor elementals, it would add 2d8 bludgeoning cold fire or lightning damage, our choice, to all five of our attacks plus make the area within 15 feet of us difficult terrain for our enemies. So over the course of five attacks, that would mean 10d8 more damage with a higher hit chance than Conjure Animals is giving, right? So in a vacuum, Conjure Minor Elementals has a slight edge damage-wise, and that edge only increases when we get to fifth level spells, as at that point, Minor Elementals jumps from 2d8 to 4d8 per hit, which is kind of crazy to me. Now it doesn't scale beyond 5th level, but yeah, as it's written, at 4th and 5th level spell slots, it's doing twice as much damage as Spirit Shroud. I have a feeling this is going to get nerfed before release, but yeah, sure. As much as I love Conjure Animals, beholden to the spreadsheet as I am, I'm going to assume that we're using Conjure Minor Elementals when I crunch numbers here in a second. But let me just add something first. If you have another player on your team that can do forced movement, whether by pushing or grappling and dragging, Conjure Animals is going to be much better for your party, especially since you can move it freely. It's also going to be a lot better at doing damage to multiple enemies every round. What's more, Conjure Minor Elementals requires an action to use, not a bonus action, so the damage from Conjure Animals would actually be better on round one anyways, since we could at the very least cast it on top of some enemies, right, and so that on their turn they would then take damage. But after that, Minor Elementals takes the lead on subsequent rounds. Again, in a vacuum. So 
I think very often in game, Conjure Animals is going to be the better spell to use, but since I'm working without knowing who is in your party, I'm just going to assume minor elementals, but will advise you to still use Conjure Animals if and when the situation calls for it. Cool? Okay, so yes, that brings us to our level 13 damage report. We've had some nice bumps since last check, primarily in the form of our fancy new druid spells. I'm assuming that we're going to be adding 2d8 to every attack now thanks to minor elementals, but we've also added 1d8 to one of our weapon attacks thanks to elemental fury, and we've capped our dexterity modifier as well. And thus, against enemies with a 10 armor class and a plus zero to their constitution saving throw, remember we're still potentially using Wrath of the Sea to do a little extra damage at the end of our turn, right? We would do 116 damage per round on average, and against an enemy with a 17 AC and a plus 7 to their con save, it would be 104 DPR. Wee-wee! We broke the centennial barrier by 13th level. Not bad, Hand of the Sea. This again kind of puts us in like that top, maybe upper half of tier one, not quite beating out everyone or anything, but so very strong still. Not necessarily overpowered yet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe? But yes, very, very good. At level 14, we would be a druid 8, and that means we get another feat. And not only do I want to bump wisdom here and take it to 18, but like I said before, there is a really strong argument for doing this before we cap dexterity. Both things increase our armor class, and while dexterity is better for our hit chance and damage on our attacks, right, everything else that we're doing is based on our wisdom, including a lot of our pushing, a lot of our spell damage, not to mention things like stunning strike, etc. So if you bumped wisdom before capping dexterity, I wouldn't blame you in the slightest. In fact, a big part of me wanted to go with Astral Self for our monk subclass on this character so that I could be a lot more sad, a single ability score dependent, and be making more attacks with my wisdom. But in the end, in order to use weapons and get weapon masteries, I needed that dexterity, right? And I really love the prone and the push here on this build, and I wanted to put the new playtest stuff through its paces. And besides, getting out those Astral arms on the Astral Self Monk takes a bonus action, which can kind of complicate things and create even more setup time for us, so... Yeah. At level 15, we would be a druid 9, and that means we get the new druid feature, Commune with Nature, which just lets us always have the Commune with Nature spell prepared, which can give us some nice utility. I really wish that maybe we'd get like one free casting of it per day without spending a spell slot, but regardless, I really applaud Watsi here for doing just like little things to give little bumps and nudges to the feel of the druid especially, making them just feel a little bit stronger, but also a lot more connected to the natural world. They feel a lot more fleshed out conceptually than ever before, I think. That's awesome. And then, yes, we get fifth level spells here. Greater Restoration is always handy, and Mass Cure Wounds actually got a nice increase to the amount that it heals, uh, like most heal spells for the playtest, but man, Open Sea Druids get Hold Monster for free. Arguably the best single target control spell in the game, as well as Conjure Elemental for free. The problem is Conjure Elemental, this new uh, version of it here, is not particularly awesome as it's written currently. And yeah, that seems a little odd. Minor Elementals are way better than their larger counterparts, apparently. At first glance, the spell seems cool. Uh, the Elemental that you summon can do some okay damage and kind of like black hole suck an enemy into their space and then restrain them. The problem is it can only do those things when a creature moves into the area of effect, like with their own movement, right? So if they're pushed into the area, it doesn't do anything. 
anything. I think wizards needs to change the wording here. So to probably match the enters the area or starts their turn verbiage, even if it means like reducing the damage or something before the spell becomes compelling. The other fifth level conjuration spell we can get here, however, Conjure Woodland Beings is pretty awesome in that it basically is like spirit guardians for druids. And as every cleric knows, criminals are used to having people not trust them as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. <laughs> No. And as every cleric knows, Spirit Guardians is an awesome spell. Now, this similarly requires an action to cast, it requires our concentration, it lasts 10 minutes and does 5d8 damage in a smaller than Spirit Guardians, like uh, 10 foot area from you, right? to enemies who, again, enter or start their turn in the space. It similarly scales by a d8 for every level that you upcast it and lets you disengage as a bonus action while the spell lasts. But as a monk, we can already do that, so no biggie. Yeah, we don't get it until 5th level instead of Spirit Guardian's 3rd level, but as a 5th level spell, it does the same amount of damage as Spirit Guardian's, just in a smaller area. Still a solid spell. I just would personally, for this build especially, prefer to upcast my Conjure Minor Elementals as a 5th level spell, since like I said, as a 5th level spell, the damage jumps to 4d8 per attack, and that is just so much damage for those of us making 5 attacks per turn especially, right? Yeah, again, expect this to get adjusted, I think, before release. At level 16, we would be a Druid 10, and as an open sea Druid, we get the Stormborn feature, which is awesome. It tells us that when Wrath of the Sea is active, that's the that aura of mist we get at third level that can potentially do damage and push at the end of our turn, right? We gain a fly speed equal to our speed, fantastic, free flight, and have resistance to cold, lightning, and thunder damage. Man, I really want that one shot that we're going to be doing soon uh, to go to 16th level so that I can get this. I know that Jeremy uh, from Insight Check, who's DMing, is going to have at least one fight with flying enemies, for sure. Hopefully not a flying Tarrasque. But at level 17, we would be a Druid 11, and that means 6th level spells, and I think you've got to go with the usuals here. Heal for a massive in-combat heal spell, or Hero's Feast for one of the best party-wide buffs in-game. The updated Conjuration spell we get access to here, uh, Conjure Fey, isn't all that great, especially for this build. You summon a face spirit that can attack and frighten an enemy, and on subsequent turns, you can teleport it and make another attack as a bonus action. But the damage isn't amazing. 3d12, that might sound like a pretty hefty sum, but at 17th level with a 6th level spell slot, that's about 20 damage on average if we hit. And concentrating on minor elementals using our bonus action for Flurry of Blows is going to do a lot more than that. Plus, you know, using Flurry of Blows is going to let us push, knock prone, etc. Conjure Fey scales really well, an extra 2d12 per level you upcast it, but still, it's not going to keep up with other options, for this build at least. One note, Conjure Minor Elementals doesn't scale as a 6th level spell, so should we go back to Conjure Animals with this 6th level spell slot instead? Conjure Animals would potentially do 74 damage over the course of a round, on average, to an enemy pushed into the area, right? But Minor Elementals adding 4d8 to 5 attacks, 20d8 would be 90 damage on average, again, with slightly better hit chance. So, as always, go for Conjure Animals if you're interested in doing damage to multiple enemies and or if you have an ally who can make good use of it as well, but I will stick with Minor Elementals for number crunching purposes. And speaking of, yes, we have arrived finally at our final damage report. 
Since last check, the main increases to our damage have come in the forms of the scaling on Conjure Minor Elementals, but we've also picked up some fantastic utility, support, and defensive options as well. And so, against enemies with a 10 armor class here and a plus zero to their constitution saving throw, we would on average do 175 damage per round. And against enemies with an 18 AC and a plus eight to their con save, it would be 157. DPR. And compared to other sustained damage builds that I have done to date, that puts us ahead of everybody at this level, including even uh, the Arcane Hand Monk build that I did with the Dungeon Dudes, ooh, I think I might be out of cards, uh, a few months ago, right? Which was awesome, but unofficial material, right? Of course, since a lot of this stuff is still in Unearthed Arcana, it's also unofficial material, so not too surprising that it's up there this high, I guess. All right, let's break it down here with some final thoughts. The tier score for this build, if you just take the damage that they do at every armor class we calculate for at each of the four damage reports and just average them all into one big number, we end up with an 86. And yes, that means we would have a new frontrunner for best sustained damage dealing character that I've ever built. The Moonsinger, the previous leader, was about five points behind or so. Now, to be fair, the Moonsinger uses officially released content, but it does have a potential glaring weakness in that it requires you to hold on to your wild shape form, which might be easier said than done. Man, look at all these druids like topping the charts lately. But yeah, this build, on the other hand, should should work pretty much as advertised so long as you're able to just hold on to your concentration. The big caveat here, of course, is that it's all in beta mode now, and I'm sure at least some things will change between now and release, right? I mean, the only, the only real question is what will change and how much will it change? If I were a betting man, I'd probably bet on wizards reducing the damage on Conjure Minor Elementals, maybe by a D8 at both 4th and 5th level, but then perhaps allowing it to continue scaling with higher spell slots. I think that's what I'd probably recommend. That change alone would bring this build a little bit back down to earth at those, especially at those later character levels. I mean, they'd still be tier one, but maybe just not beating out everybody else, right? I doubt they'll change conjure animals all that much though. Maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part. And I'm not anticipating a big nerf to just monks in general now that they've finally seemed to dial it in, right? And hey, there's even a chance some of this stuff might get buffed, right? Regardless, as long as any nerfs are relatively minor, I think we've got ourselves an incredibly potent character here. To be fair, their AC is not phenomenal, but monks did pick up some nice defensive and like hit and run abilities that will help them stay in the fight longer. And I mean, I've barely even talked about all the incredible support and utility options you could get on this character with all of those druid levels and spells, right? It is incredibly well-rounded, versatile, and packs a huge punch. I, for one, cannot wait to play it in-game, and I hope that you get to enjoy it in-game as well, but that's the build for the week. So thanks for watching. I love you guys. You're so awesome. Thank you for all that you do for me and for this channel. I hope you have a really great day and a fantastic week, and if you don't, hang in there, please. You've got this. But I also hope that you will be kind and do good and stay safe, and that I see you again really soon. But until then, take care. Bye. I hit rock bottom, it felt like a brand new start. 
I'm not the problem, sometimes things fall apart And I continue to believe The best people are free And it took some time But I'm finally fine And to be loved we need to be known We'll finally find our way back home And through the joy and pain That our lives bring We can do hard things Um, There's a podcast, it's called We Can Do Hard Things Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambash and um sister <laughs> glennon's sister amanda um gosh it's so good uh anybody who's interested in just learning and laughing and loving and um yeah self-confronting maybe and healing and uh being human um it's really it's really good highly recommended and that song is like the theme song kind of for the podcast i think it was written by glennon's daughter anyways check it out no focus on shepherd no there yes that's better. Shepard needs to be a little blurry, camera. You gotta give a little depth. I know the Blackthorn is awesome and you wanna focus on those details, but then I'm all fuzzy and it just is annoying to watch. Ooh, one of my uh, other shirts from Obvious Mimic. Welcome to the Sword Coast. Um, I promise if you visit, you won't get attacked by a Kraken. 99% chance of that not happening. I didn't write an intro tagline here. I gotta just wing it, which means this is gonna take me like five minutes <laughs> of constant screw-ups. Welcome to D4 and the Sword Coast. Uh, hi, everybody. My name's Colby. Oh, I don't usually say that at the beginning, do I? <laughs> Whew. It's gonna be one of those days. Shiny, happy foreheads holding hands. Shiny, happy foreheads holding hands. <laughs> I need to get some makeup. I keep saying that, but if I were a serious YouTuber, I'd have some powder in here. Loud people in the hall. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Have to talk on their phone while they walk past my door. My chair keeps squeaking. Why is it squeaking? Ugh, stop. Stop going. I cannot make this stop clicking. Stop. Whoa, that's not what I wanted. That probably looked inappropriate. Get all your squeaks out, squeaky. Okay. The artist formerly known as Key. What is the deal? We need some WD-40. Or... Does this... Bonus action aura of sea mist. What's it called? <laughs> Pause. And we're back. And that actually changed things significantly. And it makes me that much more excited about playing this build in our game. You're gonna hate me so much. <laughs> For the first little while, it'll just be like a stronger monk. AKA a decent character. <laughs> to make sure that you're on the same peak. Peach? <laughs> I didn't even realize how perfect this was for this video. Like, I just thought, I'm gonna wear an obvious Mimic t-shirt, but like, yeah, open sea druid, come on. You're on the ship, there's a kraken, sword coast. Perfect. Uh, conjure... <laughs> lost my train of thought. Where was I? Whew, that felt long. Was that long? That felt long. 